This is Raw Cut. Welcome to Life Bursts. I'm Matt. And I'm Sarah. Today, a really fun interview that I've been looking forward to for quite some time. This is Life Burst. It's great to have you joining us. Whether you're listening on audio, on radio, on podcast, on Facebook, YouTube, or community television, uh, this is Life Burst bringing stories to you. And today we have the wonderful, lovely Jerry joining us. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, so we're going to. Oh, I'm just really looking forward to this. I know little bits and pieces, and that's why we asked you to come in on the show. Mm. It's going to be a really, really fun show this time. So take us back to the very beginning. Where did life start out for you, Jerry? Well, I started for me in 23rd, 3rd, 1946, back in Austria. I was born in six, well, one of the little streets in Kupfenberg mm-hmm. in Austria. And home birth, that's where life started, just after the war. And as you can imagine, living in Austria at that time, life wasn't easy for my mum because she was a single mum looking after me. And I can remember at a very young age sitting on the back of her push bike as she rides through the countryside trying to get food for herself and me, you know, getting potatoes from farmers. And that was a sort of an existence for a little bit I can remember. Because as you can imagine, um, at that age, you don't remember much, but occasionally you get flashes back to what happened. And then looking at some of the paperwork that mum kept everything from her school reports to marriage certificates and everything. She married Con, my stepfather, in 49. And then in 1951, he gave me his name, which here would be an adoption. But there it says, Conrad Raskolberg gave the name, surname to, to me. So I think my name changed from mum's name to then their married name. Right. So as I grew up, I, he was my dad because, yeah. you know, being young, you wouldn't know any different. But only in later years did you see how situations changed and uh, you look back and you say, oh, yeah, now I realise that this was happening that I didn't know at that time. So what else was going on in Australia during the time that you know about? Well, as a kid, you don't take notice of much. You have fun. I used to roam the foothills, you know, you look at uh, some of the movies in the countryside and, you know, rolling hills and meadows and I used to just wander and find hazelnut trees and use your teeth to open the nuts right. <laughs> or pick wildflowers for mum because, you know, stuff like that was growing everywhere. And uh, so life, life was, you know, quite easy. A lot of times I can remember... Mum and Dad used to go for walks into the in the mountains, and I think there was one photo that I saw that I was on Dad's shoulders as we were going through the the, the, the hills and the mountains. And there was always because Dad liked his drink, so they always went to a to an inn, and I used to love that because you'd sit down and you get a Vienna sausage with a roll with it. <laughs> and that was a treat. Mm-hmm. So it was, life was great. I went to school and I did quite well at school, so I had no problems there. But the only thing I didn't like was school in winter, you had to go on your skis because there's so much snow. Right. And I hated skis because I always used to fall down <laughs> gullies and stuff going to school. So as an adult, I've never had a desire to go to the snow or to ski. Right. <laughs> Being there, tried that. Yeah, didn't like it. Yeah. Wow. Okay, Um, there's surely some stories around that then to do with skiing and uh, going to school. (laughs) A lot of them out of his memory. Yeah, that's it. (laughs) I used to fall over on the skis. That's forgotten. That skiing is out. Okay. That's not a good uh, activity for me. (laughs) 
So it sounds like a very different world to uh, those growing up in many parts of Australia, but also a very different yeah. time. See the, yeah, that's a strange. People pay a fortune to go and ski. I would, uh, pay a fortune not to. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but that, yeah, that was life. So it was good. I, yeah, I enjoyed school. I, I went three years because in 1951 we came to Australia. But before that, I I must have tell you a story because, as you can imagine, in a country like Austria, there's a lot of places that have got old, massive churches. Mm-hmm. Now, I can remember, distinctly remember, as a little kid, I don't know what age I was, I suppose it would have been maybe six, standing in this, this church... And thinking, I love you, God. Just, I feel your presence. And it was sort of a strange sort of feeling, thinking, you know, what would a kid know about God? But being in that church, I sensed God and I said, I love you, God. I love you. But also, later on, I learned where we live, there was a, a small river and a canal that I think fed a hydro plant. And I was told at a very young age, my pusher fell into the canal. Mm-hmm. And I can't prove it, but I swear, <laughs> swear in my spirit that an angel pulled me out of it. Wow. And I survived. Mm. And then, as I said, shortly after, I think a few years after, we... Um, came to Australia. My dad thought he'd, you know, try something different. Yeah, how did that all come about? Was there advertising around? We no. how? What I what I think happened, which I now see, because eventually a couple of years ago I found out who my father was. And the story was that my father was a um, German officer that got wounded and was in recuperation in the village that mum worked. She worked in a in a shop that um, also was a library and he used to come in and borrow books. And as he came in, obviously he got to know mum and he got to know mum too well. And that was how mm. I came about. And I think... When the war was over, Mum told, because it was shortly before the war, must have been just after the, or close to the war ending that I, I was conceived. So Mum told him that she was pregnant with me. And he, he said, oh, I'm sorry, Annie. I've got a wife in Germany with two children. And I, you know, he recuperated and the war was over, so they... They went to the border and he went home. But he gave her money and supported her so that things would be easier. But Con, my stepdad, didn't like that. So I guess, thinking back, that would have motivated him to go to another country. And so he looked at, I think he looked at Sweden and then came up with Australia. Wow. So that's, I think, was the motivation before for him to leave Austria. Mm. When you found out about who your real dad was, how did you feel inside with every piece of information that you've just shared? How did you Actually feel? relieved because we never knew what my background was because every time I tried to find out, I was told mind your own business. Mm. So not knowing... The details of, of that, you have the, you know, worst thoughts you can. You know, we were occupied, Austria was occupied with the Russians and the British, I think. And who knows, you know, what happened? Mm. Did she get raped? No, it was conceived sort of thing. So you had all these, these thoughts that you didn't really know because mum wouldn't tell me. Mm. And apparently my... I call him my dad because he was my dad. Yeah, that's, that's the only right. dad I knew. Yeah. He 
told my daughter that you're starting to tell, oh, you don't know, so you stopped telling us. And he said, if grandma, <clears throat> if grandma dies first, I'll tell you, but he died 20 years ago. <laughs> okay. I never found out until mum was ready to reveal mm. the circumstances behind it. Wow. Oh, thank you for sharing that. Yeah, yeah thank incredible. you. It's, you know, it made you think, oh, well, at least there was a relief that the worst thoughts weren't that, and it was, a, you know, it was, everything was okay, and she mm. was okay, but we still came to Australia yeah, in 1951. Well, when we come back, we're going to explore that a little further. This is Life First with Matt and Sarah, and we're chatting with Jerry today. If you like what you're hearing, please write a review of this podcast on your podcasting app, or you can share this on social media. This is Life First with Matt and Sarah, and today we're chatting with Jerry. Okay, Jerry, take us... Continue us on the journey. As I said, in 1951, Dad decided to come to Australia, so we got on the train and cut from Burke, caught the train to Frankfurt because that's where we departed from Frankfurt and we got on a uh, turboprop plane, you know, the old types, not the jets, but the four propeller planes, not the Constellations, but quite a big one. And we, we flew... I can remember being a young child, eight years old. Oh, this is exciting. You look at Athens. Remember flying over the Parthenon in Athens and then on to, um, I think it was one of the um, Arab countries, Bahrain or somewhere. I can't remember that one. And then on to Karachi in Pakistan. And from Karachi, we flew to Bombay. We landed in Bombay and all of a sudden everybody had to get off the plane and into a bus. And the bus went through through the city. And I can remember Bombay. The only thing I really strongly remember was the horrible smell. Mm. You know, just awful. Anyway, the bus took us to uh, this flash place. It was the Taj. I remember about 10 years ago, Terrorists attacked it. Right. Mm -hmm. That was the place that they put us up for the night. Okay. Because apparently we found out that I had problems with the engines and they had to work on them overnight. So they put us up in the Taj. That was a beautiful place. And you go, you know, go downstairs. As soon as you walked out the door, urchins from everywhere surrounded you. Yeah. Begging because they had nothing, Mm. obviously. Yeah. And so from there, went on the plane flew to Rangoon and then down to Perth and we landed in Perth Airport. As you can imagine, in November 1951, we got on the plane in Frankfurt. It was minus three degrees. <laughs> we landed in Perth. In summer. In summer, 41 degrees on the tarmac as we got off. Got off the plane. We heard, Mum told us the story. As she got off the plane, she sat on the case and cry, I want to go back home. It's <laughs> <Yeah>. too hot. <laughs> well, we didn't like it at all. And you imagine in 1951 that everything, infrastructure, it was nothing like it is today. It was, you know, get off the plane and walk across tarmac and yeah. everything. And on the bus, we all herded onto a bus and drove 60 miles inland to Northern. And that's where the uh, migrant camp was. It was apparently, it was an old... Uh, Army base, barracks and that, that we start. And the other horrible thing that sticks in your mind that you never forget, Mm -hmm. we went in to have tea. So we sat there, we got a plate, mashed potatoes, saveloys. And we looked at this, what's this? We couldn't eat, you know, growing up in Europe with European food and yet plain white mashed potatoes with these red saveloys that tasted like nothing on earth. That was horrible. <laughs> really <laughs> horrible. Me back. With Mum and I cried, Dad, he, he just ate anything. He just, you know, hucked in and ate it. What about breakfast and lunches? I can't remember that. This okay. was the only thing I remember yeah. of those barracks. And obviously being in, in the sort of barracks, mm-hmm. they were basic, just a room, hot, you know, no air conditioning, no stuff. So shortly after staying there, Dad found a place to 
to board and it was a sort of boarding house where we had a large room with a small enclave where mum had a primus cooker and she cooked all the meals on this one primus mm. and we lived there for quite a while okay and i think about 18 months after we were there i think dad decided work wasn't there but the one thing I also remember about that place, as you can imagine, coming from Austria, going to a new school, Mum sent me to the school in short Leatherhausen. Okay. And can you imagine oh, no. what happened going to that school? Oh, no. The names you were called and the things you were called. And from that day onwards, I vowed and declared, I'm not one of those be you Australians, I'm an Australian. Right. And I lost the desire to speak German. I only speak English, home, everywhere. Mum didn't like it, but... What about said, the Lederhosens? What happened to them? <laughs> they were only worn once, never again, <laughs> never again. Well, you are them anyway. Did, did yeah. they just disappear? Oh, I can't remember, but I, okay. never wore, I never wore them again. I'm glad I never wore them again. <laughs> So you were you were truly Australian at that point. It was a it was a decision. Yeah. <laughs> so your dad found work. So that took you out of the. Well, there was a bit. He. The strange part is when we came out, a lot of these people had professions. Now, if you were, whatever you were, they found a job for you in Perth and a house, but Dad said he worked in a steel mill which was his last job that he had but in actual fact he was a qualified cabinet maker now if he said to them to the authorities that i'm a cabinet maker they would have found a job for him in perth and a house mm -hmm. but no there's no steel mills in perth mm -hmm. so they said the only way to get a job like that you'd have to go to wyala or to newcastle in new south wales so he he started working around the area and uh, doing carpentry work, and that sort of slowed up and things went quiet. So he heard that there was work over here in South Australia. So in about 50, 54 or something like that. I'm getting the dates mixed up. Anyway, it doesn't matter. That's okay. About 18 months after being in Northern, he, he came across to South Australia and he got a job building the first Osborne powerhouse. It's mm -hmm. seen, since been demolished and rebuilt again. Mm -hmm. So that that was the job that he got. Once he had the job, he sent for us, and on the train we got and came across to South Australia. All right. So you so, were, what, 10, 10 years old or so by then? About 10 years yeah. old, yeah. Gee, so more adventures. Oh, um, yeah, that's, <laughs> that's right. So, and... He also found, working at the Osborne Powerhouse, he was working with a Polish person who had a house in Hendon. So the guy there sort of rented out a room for us to live in. So we lived with this Polish couple in Hendon for quite a while. So being in Hendon then, Mum had to find a place for me to go to school, so she tried to... Um, Catholic school in, in uh, Royal Park. I went there for a short period of time. I said, if you send me back there, I'm going to leave. I'm going to run away. I'm not going to that school. I hated you know, treatment in Catholic schools. So she sent me to um, the Hendon Primary. So I went there for a while. And then eventually Mum and Dad decided that you know, it was good if they got their own home. So they looked around and they bought the house in, in Devon Park where I grew up in and where they lived for the rest of their life. And I started going to the Bronton Primary and that was good fun because where we live, Dudley Park used to be where Rowley Park was mm -hmm. on Torrance Road and we lived about, I suppose, three streets back from Torrance Road. Mm -hmm. So on Fridays, you know, cars would be parked nearly all the way up there and you'd hear the rolling park. So that was in a pohole and where I lived, I went down the street 
couple a street down the pug hole through the pug hole up the pug hole and I was at school right <laughs> so that 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 was my my trip to school but as my daughter would say you're a naughty boy mm -hmm. I used to buy packets of smokes with three cigarettes in it so I'd get into the pug hole and light up a cigarette and go to school uh -huh. and deputy head <laughs> used to come up and go and Ross Coglet, you've been smoking again, standing in the quadrangle. <laughs> I think, that, how did he know I was smoking? Uh, how, how could he see that in my eyes? Uh -huh. Little realising you spelt it on me, <laughs> yeah, yeah. which smokers don't realise because mm. they can't smell it. And so, you were also in an enclosed space while you were doing it, so. No, it wasn't enclosed because it was out in the open going through the pug hole. Oh, okay, right. Yeah, you know, the pug holes used to be the areas where they took the clay out for the brickworks. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And a yeah, now they're all filled in and houses are there. Mm. Uh, but school, I liked school because I, I wasn't a dummy. I was, I think when I finished year seven, I was top of the school. And they said to me, you know, what, what school do you want to go to? I said, I want to go to a school where I can do languages. So that at that time, there was only two schools close. One was Croydon Tech, which was a technical school. And I didn't want that. I wanted the other one, which was Woodville High, which you know, they did Latin, they did French, they, I could do German there. Well, that might be a good point to pause and we'll yeah. find out where uh, where you went to school. This is Life Burst with Matt and Sarah. We're chatting to Jerry. Hey, did you know this show is available in video too? You can find it at rawcut.com.au. You're with us on Life Burst, so we're chatting to Jerry. Jerry, uh, let us in on where did where did you go to high school? Where did you end up? Right, I ended up in Woodville High because I wanted to do languages, and I had to do a, I guess you call it an aptitude test to find out what classes you're going. After filling out the paperwork, I ended up in F class, which didn't do languages, which I wanted Aww. to do. So I had to do woodwork instead, which I didn't like. So. After a year of that, I went into art because I didn't have to do those subjects, and I progressed through the classes quite well. Did you make anything interesting in woodwork? Yeah, I was just one of those set squares and a few other things, and tower, uh, yeah, tie holding, but it was all just basic stuff. Mm. Not very exciting. No, I didn't think so. Other people would have thought it was great because they loved doing that stuff, but I didn't. So I went on. And did quite well in a couple of years, and then the third year, the teacher told me I was going to fail. So to prove him wrong, I went and studied for a couple of weeks, and in maths and got B's and got B's in art and C's in geography and a few other subjects. So I passed and finished intermediate. Yeah. And as my parents told me when I asked them about uni, they said it was a waste of time and a waste of money. So I. I went out and found a job. So I found a job at Myers in the basement selling kerosene heaters. Right. And then I went on to Lucas, and, which were the battery and spare parts. I wanted to be in the office because my forte is always figures and stuff like that. But they put me out in the store. And although I, I did as best as I could, but the head storeman, had a dislike, maybe he didn't like Europeans or what, but he made life miserable. And one day when I had to deliver batteries in their brand new ute, I had the windows open because it was hot, had no air conditioning, and the papers flew around. I went to grab them, and as I grabbed them, I sight sight the car uh -huh. going down South Road, down by Henley Beach Road. And by the time I realised what happened, I'd gone through the lights, turned around, did a U-turn, came back. At the same time, the guy got out of his car, saw that his car got got out of the house, saw his car got hit, got in and chased me. Oh. But he didn't see me do a U-turn because that road goes around the dog leg. By the time I came back, he, and then I couldn't find him, couldn't find the car, so I went back to work. They went with me to the police station to report it. They are going to lock me up because I left the scene of an accident. Oh. But I said I couldn't find him. Anyway, everything was resolved and eventually I lost my job because I thought I was a, wasn't an asset. That was, <laughs> that was the last straw. That was sort of the last straw. So uh, I went from there to the 
farmers union work there and all that was clerical work which I like I was going to get do accountancy but I, I couldn't get my head around it I wanted to do it but I couldn't understand it so mate and I used to go to the pool and play pool instead of studying because <laughs> accountancy and auditing was a really dry subject so I passed through that and got sick of working in an office and I thought I'll try life out in the real world I'll go and work with my dad he was a subcontractor with Blunt's Building Homes. Okay. And you'd build homes in the middle of nowhere. Your truck would bring all the materials and you'd start digging holes, putting stumps in, up you build the house. So I did that. But working for a dad, as you can imagine, isn't an easy task because mm-hmm. he always expected more from you mm-hmm. than you could deliver. And hating to working with your hands, that side of things didn't help much mm-hmm. either. But... We worked there for quite a while with him. And then one Christmas, Blunts used to always put on a Christmas party for the kids and a party for the adults. The kids would get presents and fun and stuff to eat and drink and the adults would get a few drinks and stuff and have a bit of food. And we went to that. And the people we used to get along with, obviously it was the plumber, the electrician, because you did work with them, you got to know them. Mm-hmm. And this particular... Christmas party, unbeknown to me, the, the plumber, who we got on quite well, brought his sister-in-law along, Okay, yeah. which happened to be my wife, uh-huh. Lorraine. Your now wife. My now wife. Yeah. So our story is we met at a Christmas party because David always had to have the first dance with his wife, but he got up Lorraine danced halfway around the floor and said, oh, Jerry, can you dance with Lorraine? Mm-hmm. And then went back to his wife before he got into too much trouble. <laughs> <laughs> and we sort of met and clicked, and and from there on we got to know each other. And then the official Christmas party, she came to it with, with her then boyfriend, and she sat opposite me. And obviously there was chemistry between us because her boyfriend sensed thing in his couldn't work out. He said, I'm going home. You coming home with me? She said, no, I'm staying till then. Okay. And from that on, we got to know each other and eventually got engaged and got married. Okay, how did you propose to her? <laughs> how did I propose to her? He <laughs> <laughs> can hear you right now. <laughs> I think we bought the ring. I said, hey. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't that right. <laughs> She said, I think I had to ask her to marry me. Thinking oh, back. Okay. Like. okay, so there wasn't just, you just poked a ring in her face. Well, it was like, here, could, could here, take the ring. So, it was too long ago. Oh, this, this was 52 years ago. You know? Good job, you remembered the year. No, it is 52, it's okay. Yeah. I talked yeah. to her beforehand. It was 52, <laughs> it was in 69, and my arithmetic's quite good. And then you got married. So when did yeah, you get married? Tell us about that. Yeah, we got married up at the uh, church at Crafers, mm-hmm. and uh, it was good. And then our honeymoon was in Woomera. Okay. Because just before I got married, uh, Dad got the contract to build some football club, club rooms in Woomera. So we were up there for four weeks building, came down, got married, and had to go back and Finish the, the job. Okay. Yeah. Right. So you didn't really have a honeymoon. You just went to Woomera. That was our honeymoon. <laughs> we went nowhere else. Yeah, so yeah. you went to Woomera yeah. and you worked, and, and Lorraine just but, yeah. had to wait for you to stop working. Yeah. Well, that's it. Okay. Right. So there wasn't really a honeymoon. But, you just went away. You, you, you couldn't stay in a motel in Woomera. You had to be sponsored to be out. And to get into Woomera in those days, even now, you can't get in there. Just walk in there. You had to answer questions, you know, you had to go through security. And there was, there was a family that sponsored Lorraine to stay there and I could stay with her because Dad and me were, were in single quarters and there was a big complex where you had, you know, beds and bedrooms and big mess hall and the bar where you'd finish work and you could have a drink at 6 o'clock, the bar closed, so you'd go, have to go in and eat. Mm-hmm. So you had a big mess hall and all the food was there. Uh, but... We stayed in this home. That was our introduction to married life. And then Lorraine went back and 
when the joke finished, I came home. And I have to give up the joke because Wallo, the last few, the last week that it was up there, apparently there was a prowler where we, where we rented. We rented a house just down the road from Mum and Dad. The prowler said the road and said, you better stay home. So I told Dad I'm no longer working for you. That was back uh, in 69. That sounds so romantic. <laughs> yeah, that... So, so romantic. Once again, so once again, I was out of a job and staying home and to do things and I entertained visitors and one of the visitors was the, the Mormons. Okay, we're going to stop right there. I love this. I love when you just, can just stop your guests and when you're on like a cliffhanger and then everyone has to wait. This is Life Burst with Matt and Sarah. We're chatting with Jerry. We'll be back to find out what happened next. In Australia, juvenile arthritis affects 1 in 1,000 children. It's a silent yet common condition. Kids Arthritis is here to help support these children and their families. To help them, go to kidsarthritis.org. This has been a Raw Cut Community Service Announcement. This is Life Bus with Matt and Sarah. We're chatting with Jerry. Okay, Jerry, you've moved out from Woomera. You've had a very romantic honeymoon in Woomera, <laughs> even though it wasn't really a honeymoon. Um, and your wife still wanted to be with you. What happened next? Well, next I got a few different jobs and moved along and children came along, first Julie and then Stephen. Then eventually we bought our house up in where we are now in Banksia Park. And... Uh, I used to, I got a job at mobile and I used to travel quite a bit. Oh, you were talking about some interesting guests that came to your door. Oh, the, yeah. the Mormons and they yeah. tried to teach me about Mormonism. I started reading the book and I thought, well, a crap. He so just I, did the throwing out hand. It was rubbish because what they said, you know, the sinners turned black and went down to South America and all that sort of stuff, and you know the whole Mormon Bible was given to to one person without proof. And I thought, I can't wasn't for you, wasn't for me. Didn't sound true. Anyway, so that was the end. No more religious input in my life. As I said, we had children. Moved up the Banksia Park where we bought the house, and as I travelled a lot, uh, one of the friends that Lorraine knew. Invited to a, to a ceramic night where it only went for 10 minutes, but the lady that was there, God told her to speak to, a, speak to somebody about me. So he did, he talked to Lorraine, and Lorraine became interested in what she was saying and went to church, got saved at uh, Clemsing in those days, and got, got saved. Filled with the Spirit, got healed all in one night. Then what came. do you mean that somebody? Spoke to Lorraine about you. What, what a friend what that, that she mean? knew from a from a ch- church. We used to take okay. kids for Sunday school, so they knew each other. And but specifically, God said to Connie, speak to someone in there about me, and that was Lorraine because Lorraine God, yeah. sat opposite her. Oh, about God, okay. about God. Yeah. So that triggered the story for Lorraine, and she got saved. And as you can imagine, your partner is saved. You want to bring your partner to the same realisation. But me being me, didn't want to bar, but I was, I was happy. So she used to go off to church. I used to stay home, have me long necks and watch the replays of the races. And I didn't need church. She did. I didn't. But eventually, always this things happen at church. Oh, would you like to come along? So, yeah, you'd go. And every time you went, somebody come, do you want to go forward? Leave me alone. <laughs> <laughs> Would you go, no, leave get me out, alone. Get out of my face. Get out of my face. So yeah. things happened. And then about three weeks in a row, I was in church nearly every Sunday. And at that time, my, my brother-in-law and sister-in-law and their children went to church. And they used to go back to his place and have the young ones around and they'd put on supper after church and, They'd talk and they'd, at the end of that night they'd you know, ask if I wanted to join them in prayer. No, leave me alone. And then this particular night Malcolm was playing this record 
and I heard it. And they said, quiet, he'll, he'll hear it. But it gripped me. And I said, can you, can you copy the, rec- the, the track? And he copied two tracks. And I, that time, I was going around Adelaide to all the service stations because I was helping out a guy that was on holidays and he used to go around and dip the tanks and check the books. So I did that. And every time I got in the car, I'd play these two tracks in mm-hmm. my tape deck in the car. And then the next week, I happened to be in church again with some unknown reason, can't remember what. And after the service, we went back to the sister-in-law, brother-in-law's place, had supper, and at the end, they asked, do you want to join in, in, in prayer? And I said, yes. And I said, can you play that, that record? So he put the record on. We stood in the circle praying. And as I stood there, this shaft of light just hit me. And I could see myself not as a righteous, good person. I saw myself as God's. And I was standing there. My sister-in-law had, had to let go of my hands. The power God was so strong on me. So I, I was convinced that I needed God because he, you know, I saw myself really as he saw me. So I needed to change. And that's from that moment on, my, my life changed. I went home and said the sinner's prayer. And for a week, I sat in the lounge chair and I just shook the power. Even thinking about the power. Explain to us what what, what do you mean? The the power power of God was so strong on me that just my whole body. That's If you look at history, the Quakers, the power of God was so strong on them, they quake. And that's how I sat. I sat in a lounge chair couldn't do anything because the power of God was so strong on me. Did you feel peaceful? Did you feel anxious? Oh, I felt, I felt ecstatic. Feel... I felt it was just unbelievable. You know, people come close and they could sense there was there's a power around me. And and the um, one of the pastors, the area pastors, came around and sort of prayed for me. What what would you like? And I said, Oh, I pray for the baptism of the Spirit because you know, I knew what happened to Lorraine. Anyway, he prayed for me, nothing happened. Eventually I I came back to more of a normal life and, and in those days at Paradise, because that's where I got saved, at Paradise, mm-hmm. they had a five-week program that the council would come and explain the basic things that happened to you. So he was assigned to me, he came around and just lived around the corner. And I was so far on for God, wanting to know everything I could about everything and I was so excited that I put a fire under him. So when we went through these lessons, he got a new touch by God. And from that, Paradise also used to have Christian Grow Class, which was a 13-week program, which sort of went through different areas of the Bible, different things that happened in life, like water baptism, baptism of the Spirit, and all that sort of thing that gave you a good understanding of what, that's happened to you. So we went to that, and I I really enjoyed it. At the end of the course, I said to the teacher, how do you become one of those? He said, oh, you, you study, and, and eventually somebody might invite you to become involved. And about 10 days later, I got a phone call. Would you like to be involved in Christian Grow? So I started going to Christian Grow class and being an assistant teacher and teaching new Christians the basics of what, what the Bible's all about. And that was that was really an exciting time. And as you can imagine, new people in, in faith, a lot of them don't understand what's happened in their life and what it all means. And they've some of them have hang-ups that they've had all their life and, and you explain how God looks at different situations. And it was an encouraging time to to have input into these new Christians as mm. they were. Because you just experienced that for yourself. Yeah, I experienced it. And being open to God like I was, because one of the things I said early on as I got saved, whatever you want me 
I'll do it. Because I've, you know, you hear stories, people, God speaks to them and they won't do it. But they just go around in a circle and God speaks to them again until they are willing to do what God wants them. So I was open to that and having learned all these things, I learned about water baptism. And I thought, no, that's, I don't really need to be water baptised. But at, at the same time, I was still travelling through the country and I was down Narra Court at a order to do down there. And being Wednesday night, I looked in the local thing, what's on? Oh, there's a, a, a meeting, Pentecostal meeting in one of the places. So I went there. And a pastor from Mount Gambia came up to speak and guess what he was talking about? Water baptism. Water baptism. Look at and that. And I went up and challenged him, what do I don't need to be water baptized. He said, isn't God speaking to you? Don't you get it? Everywhere you go and everything you talk about is what? Okay. I yeah. said I'd do everything you want me to. So, okay. Okay, what about? Went back and told the pastors at Paradise, yeah, we've got one coming up soon. Uh, prepare for that. Yeah, prepared for it. On the day, walked into the church in the morning. Like, and we're going to stop right there. Oh, I'm not doing this. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> This is Life versus Matt and Sarah. We're going to find out what happens with Jerry next. If you think more people should listen to this, share this podcast on social media. This is Life Best with Matt and Sarah. And Jerry, we've just left off. You just walked into the church. What happened next? I walked into the church and one of the pastors that were in there going to do the baptism, because I had a big baptism form. Can you come in and give your testimony when you get baptised? I said, yeah, okay. Walk a bit further in the church, another pastor comes up. Can you give your testimony in the font when we do the baptism? Mm. I said, yes, I can do that. Anyway, it was came the baptism, was in the font, and it was the time that ABC2 did a broadcast of Paradise Church and Baptisms. And I had Mum and Dad there, which they listened to the thing, but nothing happened there. But it was a beautiful testimony that I gave in in when I got baptised. And from there on, I, I left Christian growth because God said, you know, it's, it's finished. I said to the pastor, I'm going to go leave. He said, you can't, you, you can't. I said, I have to. Anyway, the next day he said, I see God's moving in your life. So I went into home fellowships with my brother-in-law. He nearly fainted because it's, the whole time I said, it's a waste of time, home fellowship, I don't want nothing of it until God said you were doing it. Anyway, I started leading also, you know, when God's in something, he, he blesses you and ministry mm. prospers. So, so this is a group of Christians meeting in a home, home fellowship? Yeah, yeah. home fellowship, mm. yeah. Because well, Paradise was quite uh, prolific with home groups and that. Yeah. What were the challenges that you came up against? Like you're this really excited, new Christian, filled with the Spirit, Wanting to do exactly what God wants you to do, I'm sure it wasn't all rosy and happy. No, because I had my own way of doing things. But as I said, I hated home groups and the scripture came in Hebrews 10, don't forsake the fellowship and all together. So once God speaks to you and you, and you know it's God, you become obedient and you change your way of your thinking. But was it really that easy just to... Yeah. Hear from him and oh, know him. When, when God speaks, it doesn't happen a lot to me, but when it does, I know it's God. I have no doubt whatsoever because one of the incidents that happened to me while I was in Christian Grove, the teacher, one of her children, had a daughter that was seriously ill in the hospital. And as she conveyed it to me, I had a vision I saw the, the, the operating room, I saw the surgeons, and I saw Jesus in the room. So I, I told her, everything will be fine with the granddaughter. Jesus is there, the doctors are doing their job. And as history tells, she survived, she became a mother herself, and that was a prophetic vision word that God gave me, and I passed it on. 
And those sort of things happen through life where God speaks and things, sort of shows me things that I need to do or I need to confess. And what do you mean shows you? Like do you see pictures in your head or do you I see, see things in the room? I see pictures in the head. I don't hear an audible voice, but the inner voice of the spirit tells me my spirit. And I have that strong conviction that what he has said is true. And that's happened in, in different churches because we've been in Paradise, we've been in Teacher Gully, we've been in Bridgehaven. But wherever we go, it's where God's directed us because one day I was driving past Ridgehaven and God said, I want you to go there. And everything I heard about Ridgehaven, the things that happened there, was just the last place I wanted to be. God said, that's why I freaked Lorraine out when I said, we're going to Ridgehaven next week. We walk into the church, there was eight people, a core of eight people there. The pastor said, turn around and say hello to anyone. We stood there and everybody turned out. <laughs> we were in the centre, nobody sort of... And Ryan thought, this is no good. No coffee after church, no, no cold. But I said, that's where God wants it. Next week we went. She said, I'm not, Ryan said, I'm not coming here if we don't have you know, fellowship and coffee. Next week they had coffee and fellowship. Mm -hmm. And... As it was, that's where we went to be for a while, and that's where we fellowship, and then went on to other places, and also through that period of time, I went to Table Bible College, where I you know, studied, and even there, during one of the lectures, Barry Chance said, "We're doing prophecy today. If who wants to prophesy, and I, I, yeah, put my hand up, and I come out." He said, who wants to be prophesied over? And girls came out. He said, okay, Jerry, trust in the Lord and do your bit. So I prayed. I started praying in tongues for her and the Lord showed me things and I, I shared it with her and it spot on. It uh, sort of spoke to her spirit and it's what she needed to hear from God. Mm. El, explain to us just briefly what is prophecy and prophesying and all that that oh, you're yeah. talking about? Prophesying was when the prophets got a word from God. These days it's not the same as in the Bible days. In the Bible days the prophecy was written down and that constituted our Bible. But now you get, well, I guess it's more of word of wisdom, something like that, but sometimes you do speak into people's lives and say things to them that are going to happen that you have got no idea. Because mm. one of the things that I can remember, I, there was a couple in our church and they'd been married for quite a while, couldn't have children, just couldn't have children. I'm sitting in the, in the chair, a couple of chairs behind them, and God says, tell them that they're going to have a child next year. And I think, can I? Yeah. <laughs> what? <They> have, <laughs> what? What? <laughs> Yep, okay. They, they started walking up the aisle as they were leaving. I went up to them and said, God's shown me that your wife is going to be pregnant next year and going to have a child. And? She had a child the next year. Mm. You're sharing all of this really cool, awesome stuff. And some people listening or watching might think, I want to feel that really cool, awesome stuff too. What would you say to these people? I would say... Open up your heart to what God wants in your life. Don't look at the natural, because God is not a natural God. He's a supernatural God. So if you want to be involved in the work of God, open your heart, open your spirit, read your words, see what God wants in life for you. And if your heart is open to receive, God will speak to you. God will teach you. God will lift you up when you're low. He'll show you the direction you need to go in, in your life. Because you never know what you say, what you do, how it would affect somebody. So mm. I'm not super spiritual, but I'm obedient. If God puts something in my heart, in my spirit, I move on it because I've 
Life has proved to me that God is real and God does care for each individual. And if you get something from God, how exciting, how fulfilling it is if you can share something that God shares with you to others and you can see the effect it has on them, there is nothing better. Mm-hmm. That's lovely. Wow. Yeah, Jerry, that's... Uh, fantastic to Thank see you. the way that uh, yeah. yeah you've that you've come. I think a lot of our uh, viewers and listeners will probably have similar stories of of starting off with mm. seeds of um, of experiences of God like yours mm. in that church, um, but then life taking you in yeah. other directions. Uh, but there there are also people out there that haven't got that first right. seed. Mm. Mm. You think I'm not good enough to come to God? None of us are good enough. But if you're in a desperate situation and you've got nothing else, and if you call out to him, he will come. If you open that door for him, he'll come into your life. He'll change your life. It mightn't be instant, but it'll be a gradual thing that you'll learn to cope, to live, to have an experience that is exciting, fulfilling, and know that you are loved and there's nothing greater because Jesus came and died on that cross for us sinners that mm-hmm. we'd have life, abundant life. And you have definitely lived that out and showed that to everybody today. It hasn't been perfect. There's yeah. been troubles and tribulations, but you know there is no going back. There's only going forward. And you know when you look back, God was in those situations. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. It's like that poem, Footprints, where, you yeah. know, in the hard times have carried you. Mm-hmm. And he does. Thank you so much, Jerry, for coming in on today's show and yeah. sharing a burst of your life with us. Yeah. We really I've just appreciate got it. One more thing to say. That song that brought me to salvation was by Fangelis. Yeah. I'll find my way home. Mm-hmm. And every time I hear that, I still get choked up. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Jerry. Thank you, Jerry. This is Life Burst. It's been great that you could join us today. And uh, if you have others around you like Jerry, we love hearing stories, everyday stories, people who have been through things and are encouragement to you. So thank you so much for joining us today. This has been Life Burst. You can catch up with us wherever you get your podcasts from and on YouTube and Facebook and community radio and television. Have a great week. I'm Sarah. And I'm Matt. Life Bursts is hosted by Matthew Karat and Sarah Freeman with production by Reese Jarrett and Kay Hoshra Ozadigan. For more episodes of Life Bursts, go to rawcut.com.au. This is a Raw Cut production.